Hello everyone, and welcome to Paranormalize, where our goal is to normalize the concept that life goes on after death. This is our weekly podcast facilitated by local tour agency Haunted Cincinnati, where we share personal experiences, explain the science behind ghost hunting, and attempt to answer questions about the unknown. I'm your co-host Alex. I'm Alicia. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Paranormalize. This week, we're going to be taking a bit of a turn away from investigations and focusing instead on the more dangerous side of the paranormal demons. Let's start this off by making a couple things clear. Yes, demons are very real. And yes, they are extremely dangerous beings who should be avoided at all cost. As always on Paranormalized, we will make jokes and banter with each other throughout this episode. But make no mistake... Demons are no laughing matter, and they should never, under any circumstances, be actively pursued. Consider all of the knowledge shared in this episode to be a necessary educational warning, so that you may take the precautions needed during your ghost hunting adventures to ensure that you stay safe. Your best protection against demonic activity is just to completely avoid places that are well-known or famous for demonic activity. Bobby Mackey's is a local hotspot in Cincinnati that's widely known for their honky-tonk music, good drinks, and as being the infamous portal to hell. Many of people have left Bobby Mackey's with an extremely negative attachments that have induced traumatic events like car crashes, deathly illnesses, and just strings of bad luck um, have followed people out of there. In the worst cases, the beginnings of demonic possessions have been reported. As an individual who has experienced wide depths of the paranormal, I beg of you not to think of this as cool or exciting. I have never entered Bobby Mackey's. None of us have, and we never will either. If you have any, and I mean any, semblance of intelligence, you will stay far away from any location that has any demonic connotation with it. To our knowledge, in the Cincinnati area, Bobby Mackey's and Saddamsville Rectory are the only known locations to be associated with demonic activity. And again, we do not tell you this so you can seek them out, but rather to avoid them at all costs. Where I'm from, in New York, we're actually pretty close to a town called Hinsdale. And hidden in the woods um, outside of the town is an abandoned house that is well known for being linked with demonic activity. Um, it's called the Hinsdale House, and I'm pretty sure it's completely off-limits to everyone except the owner. Thank God for a reason. There are some other places, like the Sally House in Kansas and the Amityville House in New York. They are very cool places to research, but very much not cool places to go. A lot of these places are also entirely off-limits, like Alicia had just said. That's actually a good idea, Alex. Admire and research these places from afar and then get the thrill you're looking for without ever endangering yourself. But what if you're unsure if a location you're investigating has demonic happenings present? Take the precautions we outlined in our previous episode. Say a prayer before entering and after leaving. Make a stern point that whoever is there must stay there and they may not follow you home. I know many individuals who wear religious jewelry as an added precaution of sorts. Additionally, if you believe that you are beginning to experience any demonic activity, leave immediately. Do not further engage it. Say your exit prayer and give your point that they absolutely may not leave with you. 
So while my sister and I have seen a demonic entity in a humanoid form, most of the time you won't see something that obvious. That's one of the most extreme cases, aside from full-on demonic possession. Most of this stuff starts small in a boil-the-frog type way. What this means is that most events influenced by demonic activity are not quickly linked to being in contact with a demonic entity. Hold up, hold up. Boil the frog. Explain what that means. It's not a very common phrase nowadays. So essentially, boil the frog has to do with you not noticing when things are getting bad. So say you take a frog and you put it in a pot of water and you turn on the heat. The frog will not jump out of the water even when it starts boiling because the heat was so gradual it basically didn't realize it was being boiled alive until it was happening. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much sums up demonic happenings, okay. Um, it's a way better analogy than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho. So in our interpretation, there exists three different types of demonic activity. There's general demonic activity demonic attachment, and demonic possession. Demonic activity consists of extremely dark, hostile, and malicious energy that will manipulate people and objects without necessarily attaching itself to them. Demonic activity might cause events such as a car crash, or might make a relative ill, or might attack individuals within their domain. Bringing up Bobby Mackey's again, I know of several people personally who, while visiting, complained of their back burning and hurting, and upon lifting up their shirts, there are large and deep scratch marks upon their back. They luckily never experiencing anything upon leaving, which is where we make the important distinction between demonic activity and demonic attachment. Activity is a small window into what demons are capable of, and halts upon leaving the place that the demon resides. So, demonic attachments, uh, this is where the funneling begins. The demon is attempting to sort out who is the winkest person nearby. Um, demons will pick out individuals who they believe they are capable of influencing, controlling, and exerting their power over. Most demonic attachments begin as, you know, the frog boil analogy, and they will like many demons will present themselves as innocent creatures who need some sort of help to investigators. Uh, most commonly, they present themselves as the spirits of children who are stuck and will claim that the investigator making contact can help them be free. You might remember the other week when Drew and I said we don't mess with child spirits. That would be why, my friends. Yeah, it's, it's just best to avoid children, alive or not, <laughs> you know. But... People will often fall for a demon's claims and, in their own words, become obsessed with helping them. This obsession draws attention to the demon, and attention is power when it comes to paranormal activity. The attachment then begins. The activity outlined earlier becomes the new norm for someone who is experiencing a demonic attachment. Demons will invade your home life, and if not dealt with from there, will begin to start the possession phase. During demonic possession, there's a singular person finding themselves under the influence of a demon. Unlike the horror movies, it's not all spinning your head around and projectile vomiting. It's more like being unable to control your mood and sometimes your actions. Generally, you become a negative influence in the lives of others, which helps the demon since it feeds off of negative energy. Think of it like a parasite, with you as their host. Absolutely. Uh, once a demon has sunk their claws fully into you, they are much more difficult to remove. Essentially, this stage has all the aspects of the previous ones, but on a much more intense and dangerous scale than what was previously happening. 
Those experiencing demonic possession will have no good days, and they will isolate and live in fear. For example, think of one of the most famous demonic possession cases of all time, Annabelle. The story of Annabelle began in 1970, when a woman purchased a Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store as a gift for her daughter Donna. Yes, it was a Raggedy Ann doll. It was not the porcelain thing that you see in the movie. And a Raggedy Ann doll is much more terrifying to me. I do not know why, but do you agree? Like It's because they're cute. Like they're, they're, Yeah, they look way more innocent than a porcelain doll. The the porcelain doll on Annabelle looks like it would slit my throat. A Raggedy Ann doll, they're just chilling. I, it's just more terrifying to me. I don't understand why. Maybe it's because of that, maybe not. But anyways... A woman purchased it for her daughter named Donna, and Donna had just recently graduated from college. So Donna got an apartment and brought the doll with her, and then soon the doll began to make noticeable movements. At first, it was just slight changes in position, but then it began to move from room to room on its own. Donna soon began finding parchments with notes scribbled on them in childlike handwriting. The notes would read such things like, help us. Donna finally decided to seek out someone, when on one instance, on holding the doll, blood began dripping out of it. After this, she called a medium, who informed her that the spirit of a little girl named Annabelle Higgins was manipulating the doll. According to the medium, Annabelle lived on the property that Donna's apartment building was built on, where she was found dead at just seven years old. Annabelle allegedly told the medium that she loved Donna and wanted to be kept and protected by her. And so Donna unfortunately did so and welcomed the spirit willingly into her home, pitying the poor girl who had lost her life so young. Soon the activity took a dark turn, however. A friend of Donna reports that he once awoke to find the doll standing at the edge of his bed when it then crawled up on top of him and began to strangle him. He says he passed out from a lack of oxygen and awoke in the morning with bruises all around his neck. Obviously concerned with the malicious turn Annabelle had taken, Donna sought help from the church, where she was referred to famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed and Lorraine quickly determined that there was no little girl, and the doll was rather being manipulated by a demon who had tricked Donna into welcoming it into her home. The demon's end goal had been to possess Donna. Ed and Lorraine refer to the demonic possession process as invitation, obsession, infestation, oppression, and possession, which I think is a very good way to sum that up. Can we just talk about what a crappy medium that was? Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> how? Like, that's a pretty rough thing to get wrong. It's so vastly wrong. Like... How do you mess up that badly? Like, I understand, like, they're deceiving, but I just, I don't know. I feel like that medium probably doesn't sleep well at white with that weighing on her conscience. Yeah, for real. So let's just, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll consider this a pro tip. If you have a doll that starts bleeding, um, don't assume that it's something that just needs your help. Please. <laughs> Um, if you believe that you are experiencing demonic activity in your home life to the point where you feel it cannot be ignored, you need to seek help immediately from someone 
who can actually help you. Um, it is imperative not only to your safety, but to those around you as well. But if it is possible to ignore it, then do it to the absolute. Pay no manner to anything strange that occurs. Do not speak it into existence with anyone else. People who have long since bested demonic entities still fear speaking of it to this day for fear that it will return. Occasionally, demons present themselves as poltergeist activity, such as things being thrown around or dropped, whether in front of you or in another room to startle you. Sometimes they show up in dreams to spread fear and discord. There are times when they appear in a more pleasant manner in dreams in order to lower your defenses. During a full-on possession, they will rarely, if ever, present themselves in a physical form, making it harder to identify what is dominating your actions. A few weeks ago, Alex told us the story of her demonic encounter, which we believe is an example of demonic attachment. That story really got me thinking about this story that my great-aunt told me over a decade ago about a really strange encounter she had um, that she was never really able to explain, and now that I'm older and more knowledgeable, I actually think she might have met something demonic, uh, probably falling into the demonic activity category. And I actually called her a couple weeks ago and asked her to tell me the story again so that I could get all the details right because I knew that I wanted to share this story with everyone. Now, I love my great aunt. She's one of the weirdest people I have ever met. And she's just one of those relatives that you barely know but as soon as you meet her, you just feel this like crazy kinship with her. And she is also the most intense storyteller I have ever met. And that's saying something, seeing as how I know Drew. Hey, and uh, <laughs> that, that's fair. <laughs> you'll see. Eventually, y'all, you'll see. He's intense as all heck. Um, and going back to my aunt, um, as well as being a storyteller, she's also a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Uh, she loves talking about aliens, ghosts, all that jazz. The poor thing was hooked on ancient aliens until I sat down and had a talk with her about it. That show is crap. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I'm getting off topic. I'm not as good a storyteller as she is. Uh, she has had many paranormal experiences ever since she was a little girl, uh, which has sparked her interest in the world of conspiracies. I personally believe that she is a sensitive in terms of the paranormal. It almost seems like things are drawn to her. So in the 1950s, my Aunt Mart was in her mid-twenties. She was actually 24, just like I am, which is kind of fun. Uh, she was married, had two kids, and was actually pregnant with her third. And she was living up in Michigan, where she still lives today. And because she was pregnant, she was staying home while her husband was at work. And she told me it was summer, so her kids were also home during the day. And families from all around the neighborhood would sometimes ask her to keep an eye on their kids as well. And she was always happy to do it. Um, apparently, she would just sit on her front stoop knitting while her kids played in the road. And other kids would just kind of show up. On this day, it was starting to get a little later in the day. And she was watching a group of about 10 kids playing in the street. But there was this one boy who was just sitting on the bottom step of the stoop and she was like on the top of it. She hadn't seen him sit down because she had been focused on her knitting and it didn't look like any of the children that she had been watching. So she got up and kind of walked down the stairs, kind of scooted around him to talk to him. Uh, and once she got like a good look at his face, uh, she was right that she didn't recognize him. He looked to be about eight years old. He had really dark black hair and was wearing black pants, an ivory shirt, and a blue coat. 
And she introduced herself, so she didn't scare him, and asked if he was new to the neighborhood, and he just nodded yes. She explained that it was perfectly okay to play with the other kids as long as his parents said it was okay. And, you know, he just kind of smiled back at her. Uh, my aunt was saying how much he looked like a nice kid, you know, like very nice clothes. They weren't like dirty or anything. He had a very sweet face, the whole shebang. But after he smiled, he explained that he didn't want to play with the, the game that like the other kids were playing. He wanted to play his own game. So he reached into his coat and pulled out this folded piece of cardboard. And when he unfolded it, my Aunt Mart saw that someone had drawn a Ouija board on it. And she was, you know, instantly uncomfortable. She stood up straight and told him that that wasn't the type of game that he should be playing. Apparently, he laughed, uh, called her by her first name, which she hadn't introduced herself as, and asked if she was afraid. And then he kind of opened his like opened his eyes, and they were completely black. Um, Aunt Mart said that her blood ran cold and all the hair on the back of her neck stood up, but the kid just kind of like kept laughing. Um, then she said that she saw the Ouija board start floating, and he asked if she would let the other kids play with him, and she told him no, and that all of these children were under her protection, and that she wasn't going to let them get hurt. After that, apparently she blacked out, and she came to when her son had pulled on her skirt because she had been standing there staring at nothing for at least five minutes, and she never saw the kid again. This that's, proves okay. That's messed up. Sorry, <laughs> that's messed up. It is messed up, but this proves my postulation: the demons appear wearing blue. It does. He was wearing a blue coat, right? Yeah, and it's. It, I think it's kind of crazy to me that after all this time, she remembers that he was wearing blue, even though she had no idea that that was a significant detail. But you know, when we hear it, we we can make that connection. I think that there is maybe a possibility that if you're engaging with a demonic presence that's wearing blue in some capacity, that it just becomes a random detail that you can't forget. You know what I think? I think that this proves that children are lost causes and we should just disengage <laughs> for our own safety. Yes. Yes. That is what this episode is really about. Just stay away from children at all costs. They're that's evil. A, that's, a, that's a good message. I think we should <laughs> we should take that to heart, guys. But I do think that's all the time that we have for today. Join us next time on Paranormalize, where we will be discussing my favorite topic, dreams, and the links that they may have to the paranormal. Stay haunted, Cincinnati. <laughs>